In today's episode of Flip the Switch, we fly out to San Diego to meet with some tech leaders out in California to talk about making people care. We talk about everything from what their teams care about to what the brands that they work with care about, all the way down to what those end users ultimately care about. Enjoy. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Our first guest on the show today is Reed Carr, the CEO of Red Door Interactive. Reed and his wife Amy started Red Door Interactive in 2002 after leaving agency life behind in LA. Now Red Door is nearly 100 people strong with multiple offices and people in different locations around the country. They're one of the largest independent agencies around, and they work with some of the most interesting brands in the world, including Asics, Titleist, WD-40, Igloo Coolers, and GoGo, and even the newest San Diego USL team. It was named one of the best places to work in San Diego, and Reed and Red Door Interactive really take creating emotional connections seriously. Our next guest is former CRO and global head of business development for Hookit, a business intelligence tool that works with sports properties and sponsors to quantify the value and performance of sports sponsorships. At Hookit, Carl helped the team increase sales revenue 400% in two years and brought in huge clients like New Balance and Liverpool. One of his many roles leading sports tech companies was in the early 2000s, where Carl was the CMO and CRO of Tickets.com, where he led sales, marketing, biz dev, and process re-engineering before selling to MLB Advanced Media in 2005. A fun fact for everyone listening in college sports, Carl's a nine-time NCAA All-American at UCLA for swimming and water polo, and he's in the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame. We have a lot of fun with these two on the show. Thanks for joining us. All right. Reed, Carl, welcome to the show. Appreciate you guys being here. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming in. You bet, as am I. So for those listening, we are in Reed's office here at Red Door Interactive in gorgeous San Diego. And actually, my family came to surprise me um, this weekend. And so I'm just glad that they are letting me escape for a little bit to record with you guys. So again, appreciate the hospitality, Reed and Carl getting us set up here. Yeah, glad you could come out and see us here. Well, and we have all dealt with a business family relationship, so we get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's get us started talking about relationships, right? You guys came to meet each other at SDSI, right? Tell tell us a little bit about what that is and how you guys came to be linked. SDSI stands for San Diego Sport Innovators. Uh, it's about 10 years old. It started uh, as an adjunct um, organization to San Diego Connect, which is a broader, deeper, wider organization around biotech, biopharma, that sort of thing. Uh, and it spun off uh, as its own entity about three years ago. Uh, Reed and I met six or seven years ago, something like that. Yeah, I think that's about right. Uh, and basically what, what the organization does, it's a membership organization for local businesses here in town, sort of focused around the sport and lifestyle industry, sport and active lifestyle industry. We've sort of coined SAL for that. And over the 10 years, companies come through our accelerator program. Reed and I met mentoring a single company, formed a great relationship subsequent to that. Uh, and I want to say, read something like $85 million in, yep. in seed, angel, and VC, and, and Series ABC money has gone into 
uh, graduates of the accelerator program. Yeah, we're proud of that. I mean, it's what better place to have a sports and active lifestyle kind of uh, focus, and uh, and then it seems to be paying off. I love it. Well, you guys, I think SDSI is a great example. You guys have been a part of small teams that have grown, whether it be your own, whether it be your participation in SDSI. Um, I, I think as we we think about teams growing and working with customers the way that you guys do with your companies that you've been a part of and that you are a part of. Um, I think getting people to care really becomes so important to ultimately business. Um, whether that be your team, whether that be your customers, whether that be their end customers and the, or the brands. Um, so I think that's where we're going to end up focusing a lot of today. Uh, but why don't, why don't we start there talking about your teams? Um, as you guys have grown from small companies to 80, Red Doors now over 80 people, right? Yep. Hook It, you guys had a massive growth when you were there, Carl. Um, so why don't you guys talk a little bit about growing that small team and getting a small group of people to care versus getting a much bigger group of people to care about sure. kind of the mission and the purpose of yeah. the organization? Well, yeah, I mean, at the root of it is people do want to care. And I think hopefully most people are coming to work for something other than a paycheck. Um, and and that's you know, has its own motivations, you know, to, for lifestyle or, or whatever it may be. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, what we believe here at Red Door is that, um, you know, people want to like and respect the people they work with. They want to have the tools available that they can do their best work. Um, at the end of the day, fulfill something in them, which is part of it is being part of something with, you know, other people who they think have similar values, um, as well as then, you know, they're, they have everything they need. They're learning, they're growing, um, and they're putting something out into the world that they can be proud of. I agree with that. And I've watched Reed up close and firsthand for the past several years, not only create a culture, but sustain a culture here where people do want to come to work. They, they feel valued. Um, the energy and the enthusiasm around RDI, Red Door Interactive, is palpable. You can feel it uh, when you walk in the building. Uh, one of the big challenges in going from a small team to a larger team or a very large team is is that very thing, culture. And what I've come to learn over a few, you know, around the horns on this particular aspect is that the more stakeholders there are in the business, be they financial stakeholders or or in a public environment shareholders, um, governance, what, whatever, the more stakeholders at the table, the bigger the challenge it is to sustain the culture no that got you there. So, I mean, we experienced that um, firsthand at several different uh, companies I've been a part of, uh, most recently at Hook It. I mean, we were, when I joined the company, we were 24, 25 people um, in, in sort of a short two years, we were able to grow the customer base um, across the country and open Europe. Uh, and what that did was it is sort of led to and set the stage for a pretty significant slug of capital coming into the company. And at that point, um, and I still think the two co-founders are doing a reasonably good job of maintaining that culture, but man, it is tough to do. So how did you guys do it at Hook It? I mean, I, I know like, so if you think about Danny Meyer, I, I like a lot of his stuff that he does from Shake Shack, right? And uh, Union Square Hospitality Group. Like, I, I think one of the things he said at one point was, 
he, he rattled off this list of all the people that are involved from customers to team members. And at, at the end of all of it were, was investors. They were the not, not unimportant, but they were the least important because ultimately if we focused on all these other things, the investors would be happy because we'd be growing the business. You guys have both been in, involved in businesses that have that. I mean, how, how have you, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you grow culture and maintain that, that focus with, all those stakeholders pulling you in different directions. Boy, if we all knew the exact answer to that question, we'd probably be doing something else. Uh, the reality is it is the razor's edge. And it's a very narrow path to keep investors happy on the one hand and maintain the culture on the other. There's this sort of old cliche, you know, to keep doing what got you here because that's why the investors are here, because you were doing something right. If you start to pivot on that, or you start to listen to too many voices, and you, you know that sort of dissipates the energy, and now distractions come in, and now you sort of forgot your North Star, and that's a really important thing from my perspective. If only all the investors actually practiced that as well <laughs> and didn't just say it. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's easy to say that investors come last, but I think a lot of times the investors have an opinion. I mean, they feel no like maybe this is the experience I had when I was at your environment and I think you should be doing something different or I've come from some other place. I think you should do something different. Uh, not to mention then the, how it occupies your time uh, reporting to investors and preparing for all mm. those things. So, I mean, a lot of it goes back to what Carl's talking about is just keeping or taking those things, taking your eye off the ball. Um, I think where you spend your time and where you spend your focus, I first and foremost spend the time and focus on our people uh, on the inside and try to understand what their world and reality is like on a day-to-day -day basis. And then obviously with clients uh, to understand what's going on in their world. Um, I spend very little time caring about what a competitor might be doing, for example, yeah. um, because they're going to do what they're going to do. As long as I hear what's happening in our clients, um, I feel like we can be at the right place at the right time uh, for what their needs may be and do the same, obviously, for our people. I tend to spoke, uh, spend the majority of my time on our people mm -hmm. um, because they are the ones who are in the trenches with the clients and seeing it from their perspective and then creating an environment where they do have a voice um, at all ranks of the organization to make sure that I'm getting as best an authentic truth as I can get from them. So what are, what are some specific strategies that you use at here at Red Door to really get an insight as to what's going on with your people? What sure. are they feeling? And, and ultimately they're going to be telling you what the customers yeah. are saying. What, what do you, what do you guys do here at Red We've Door? We've created that? a lot of different communication feedback loops and, and venues. Um, I think of things as, um, you know, I want to hear the stuff on a day-to-day -day basis, but understand that we also have backstops, make sure that we have a forum to make sure it gets all out there on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we use tools. We have a, a, a product here that we use called uh, Office Vibe. Um, Office Vibe, okay. Yeah, um, and it's a company out there that um, basically does, uh, we have surveys going on every day of our people. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a what, few, are they, what kind of things are they capturing? Uh, the well, they have their pillars of engagement that they go off of, and so okay. it kind of fits into, uh, I want to say it's like eight, or eight or 10 categories, you know, uh, wellness and ambassadorship, um, you know, stress, all sorts of things. And they have their questions. And so, 
on any given day. So everyone gets at least one of these every week, but it's going out at different times of the day, at different days of the week, that sort of thing. And it's like usually about four or five questions Mm -hmm. and it's always kind of remixed. And so you can look at it from a lot of different angles. And so people can choose to give anonymous feedback. They can give open feedback. And I make sure that I respond to whatever's in there all are you, the time. Are you getting a dashboard that mm-hmm. shows kind of what the pulse is? Yeah. That's, yeah, you get a dashboard. Um, but we, so we are built on transparency here. So we put that back to the employees. Uh, we have committees to that say, hey, this is going, you know, slipping or here's what people are saying. Mm. What feedback and ideas do you have for how we can address this? And I think a big part of it is that we do address these things and address it in an open environment. Uh, we're open book financials, so we have every two weeks report financials to people. Um, who, who is people? Uh, the open the entire company. I love that. Um, you can come if you want to. It's an it's an optional meeting, um, and so there's feedback loop that way. Um, we have. Uh, our town halls, we have Expo we had just had yesterday of showing work. So a lot of different opportunities for people to show what they've been doing, to communicate. We have ways for uh, people to give um, praise uh, that's uh, up and you can see um, it's called Mad Props or another tool called Kudos Now. Um, so people, What was that called? Kudos Now? Yeah, is the okay. product name. Uh, where people can say, hey, so-and-so did a great job for us and how that aligns back to core values. So... Um, you know that well, and, and not to go off on a tangent. I'm, sure. I'm, th- I'm thinking about this because we just created a tool like this um, with Purdue of, of a recognition tool, mm-hmm. and I think so often people when they first start with these recognition tools it's, or praise tools, yeah, it's it's something that exists to say good job for. We're going to give it to people for going above and beyond, mm-hmm. and then above and beyond is so ambiguous that it ends up paralyzing people or people start improvising and just making stuff up and like, Oh, Joe showed up to work on time today. It's like, that's an expectation. So I love that you guys have tied it back to core values. Yeah. You tie it back to core values. You can give, um, kind of points in a way for them. It was like, it was just a thank you or Mm -hmm. is it well done or it's got different levels there. Um, but it's simple. I mean, it's, and in fact, one of the pillars of engagement from office vibe is recognition. It's Mm. from peers, from managers and people want it in different forms. Some people want it publicly. Some people want it kind of behind the scenes. Um, but it's important to recognize that it is a thing and it's something you need to satisfy for people. Yeah. Carl, how how about with the organizations you've been a part of from tickets.com to hook it? I mean, you've been a bunch of places. How did, how did you guys approach kind of this really staying in touch and, and getting to understand what your people care about? Yeah, no, that's, that's hugely important. And I, I love what, what Rija said because Red Door Interactive connotates and implies and is, and is really an interactive digital agency. So these interactive tools, the digital tools that he's deployed around the company um, are awesome because he's encouraging the employee or the partners, or whatever you call those folks, yep. um, to actually walk the walk and drink the Kool Aid, so to speak. That said, um, whether it's digital tools like like Kudos Now, or 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 it's a walking around management style, the most important thing is honest, regular feedback and commentary from the CEO and from the senior leadership team. Any and all of these things, if they're deployed, but they're not acted upon, they're not responded to, they're not managed, they're not embraced, they fall, they ultimately, people figure that out. Okay, well, I don't need to respond to this anymore because that just ain't working. Yep. Nobody's listening and nobody cares. Yep. Um, so it, it almost doesn't matter what tool or what methodology you deploy, provided 
you know, you or I or anyone as the CEO or part of the senior leadership team cares about it, takes responsibility for it, for his or her area of expertise, assuming, you know, there, there are people under one's management, you really got to pay attention to that. So at the end of the day, as a senior leader or a CEO, you know, I've always felt that our respective jobs were to help our individual staff, members, uh, teammates, if you will, be the best they can be. What, what's your problem today? How can I or we help you solve that problem so that it doesn't turn into, I have a problem, but we have a solution? Yeah, yeah. I love that. You know, it's a big part when you talk about is, is um, what signals you're sending, right? And mm-hmm. so where you spend your time, the management by walking around, like Carl was talking about, is who do you go talk to and, and, and how do you represent yourself when you go? And, you know, if you're spending all your time with investors versus all your time with customers, you know, everyone sees that and it means something to them. So what they're picking up, um, the symbols you have on walls, where you invest, um, says something to people about what matters. It's interesting too, like when you talk about symbols, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think about with symbols is just even office size. Yep. Right. I think when you look at office structure, even today and and open floor plans get kind of a lot of flack now or starting to, but you know, I think of that corner office that the executive has that's humongous and has a whole table in it just for meetings. Right. I think I was doing some research the other day and I was just curious about it. And I found that, right. Those started and kind of way back in the day when that only place to meet was the CEO's office because the rest of the whole office plan was all manufacturing or whatever. So the, the only place to meet was in the CEO's office. But now as you think about it, CEOs spending almost all their time or should be right. Getting to know their people and caring about them the way we're talking about right now. And so I was reading about one CEO that has an office that's about the size of the room that we're in right now, which is, I don't know what it's, mm. it's, it's, it's tiny. It's kind yeah. of like a phone booth, if yeah. you will. Um, because that was his place for doing individual work that obviously you still have to do as a, as a, a C-suite executive, but the rest of it, if he was going to take meetings, he was doing that out on the floor with his people, as opposed to having what I look at a lot of sports teams where they've got people lined out of the door, waiting, ready for their next meeting. I'm the four o'clock. And right when four o'clock hits, somebody leaves and the next person comes in. Right. And so the, the C-suite executive ends up just being locked in his office the whole time. And when right. you think about symbols sending, that's one saying, hey, this is this is the big dog house, yeah. right? And I'm not one with the people. Yep. Um, so it's just fascinating. Um, one of the things I, I want to kind of think with you guys, as, as leaders of your teams and in the tech side of things, um, I, I think there's there's an interesting balance between innovation and efficiency, if you will, or consistency. And as I look at a lot of sports teams that that we end up working with, it feels like they're kind of trying to straddle both. And so I'm curious as to how you guys approach the differences between creating a culture for efficiency and consistency versus one around innovation. Yeah, I think that the occult, well, so it depends on what your business is, depends on what is uh, most meaningful to customers as it relates to, I think the culture has to pay off um, toward a purpose and the, and the purpose has to be connected to people, something that people want to buy. So you can create a, you know, a luxury commodity or something, but no one wants to pay for it or something like that, then, you know, that's not useful. So if that, if that's then needs leads to efficiency, 
um, having a culture of innovation can lead to efficiency if it's a if it's price motivation that you're trying to get down to because that's going to be the yield that you need. So I think it's all connected. I guess is yeah. where I'm going with it that um, every company needs innovation or they die. Um, I think if you can efficiently innovate, that would be really great. <laughs> if you can consistently <laughs> efficiently <laughs> innovate, right. So that's where I think ultimately that's where it needs to net out. Right. And think about what, what purpose do you, are you innovating for the purposes of growing margin because you're going to be a leader? Um, that is going to be a little bit different than innovating yeah. for efficiency because you're trying to reduce costs, which might be a lean six Sigma version versus a kind of a dreamer version getting out in the world. Uh, both are very different cultures uh, for different purposes. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the uh, two, really deep dives I've done on the tech side, tickets.com and hook it, um, were really quite different. But at the end of that road, there were similarities, obviously. At tickets.com, it was a classic roll-up of 11 small regional ticket companies around the country. Uh, and when our management team came in, um, the, the initial thing we found that the prior management team had done a really poor job of was integrating each of those small regional ticketing companies and more importantly, the leaders in those in those regional offices to actually get on board that they were now part of a larger organization mm. and there was some continuity required and there was some symmetry required. And in fact, there was a new culture required and it, it was quite challenging. That, I think, was really hard work. Well, in fact, I know it was because I lived it. <laughs> um, we, you know, we had to close some offices. We ended up some sunsetting some products, all for the right reasons, um, because we needed to right-size the company efficiency. We needed to consistently put out to the marketplace a message that made sense to the various customer segments that we that we served. And then ultimately we needed to innovate. And that's in a, in a tech stack um, where you've got programmers and engineers and coders and all of that sort of thing. Invariably what happens um, is a coder or an engineer um, starts to go down a path that they think is really cool. And so they start running off line and line and line and lines of code and then somebody has to go, whoa, wait a minute, you just went down a, a path that is not efficient for us because it's not consistent with who we say we are for sure. and who we say we need to be. Yeah. So that's a, <clears throat> that's a huge challenge for tech companies because that product roadmap, <clears throat> excuse me, that product roadmap drives everything. And at the end of the day, to Reed's point, two things um, are, are sort of the harbingers, if you will, to, to successful innovation. One, you have to have a product that the marketplace wants to buy at a price that the marketplace will pay for it. And secondly, you need to have an able-bodied sales and marketing staff that understands the product inside out and can effectively position it in the marketplace and sell it in. Uh, so, you know, the, the flip side of that coin is Hook It was built from the ground up. Um, n none of this M&A stuff, merger and acquisition, no, no, you know, third party processes or, or products or engineering or coding coming in. Um, that said, huge, huge product roadmap going forward because they're, they have kind of cracked the code 
on, if you will, measurement and valuation 2.0 in the world of sponsorship and electronic media all around social media and engagement. So there's a major league appetite out there for the promise of what Hook It can deliver, but keeping up with that product development and being able to consistently and innovatively um, and efficiently deploy that message and get it sold and managed and serviced into the marketplace is a huge challenge, whether you're Hook It or whether you're Red Door Interactive or whether you're the widget maker down the street. Yeah, and keeping everybody on the same page about what they're what they could or should be doing. Cause I mean, particularly with innovation, I mean, you can go down so many paths, um, you know, but really getting them to understand the people who are working on that, to understand what the customer needs and what's real innovation. Uh, what is, cause innovation can be very simple sometimes. And that's not always what people want to do. They want to innovate in big ways. Let me, uh, let me change, change right. the game. Yeah. And you look at some of the innovation that has happened in the world that's been transformative and it could be simple, like a different cap or something. Right, and people right. are like, oh my God, this, this product is so much better because it's easier to use. It wasn't the formulation. It wasn't anything. Yeah. It was just, it was simpler. I think that's some of the beauty of, um, you know, certainly Apple's um, reduced transformation, that second coming was sim simplifying the product line, right? Where you're like, now this is all we're going to focus on is these four products. After that, it's like, God, how much waste, you know, goes away. Um, and it's in keeping everybody on the same page, particularly as businesses do get more complicated because they do Apple has, and everybody has, um, but to figure out what actually moves the needle, um, and it has to come in the, it doesn't always have to come in the form of something Completely. crazy ambitious. Yeah. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, innovating for customers, right. And what do customers actually care about? So you guys have both had some some pretty big brand names that you guys have worked with over the years in, in the various companies from Titleist and Asics with you, Reed at Red mm -hmm. Door, or, or Carl with you, New Balance and Liverpool with Hook It, right? Um, so as we think about that, I mean, what are what are you seeing that customers are really caring about? What kind of innovations are, are they looking for now? What are what are what makes them take what what makes them care in your mind uh, as it relates to y'all's world? You know, I think you, you so break that apart in a couple pieces, right? At the consumer level is a little different than the business level. Mm -hmm. At the consumer level, I mean, you have obviously some trends, trends related to the, what's the experience. Uh, what is this, you know, what does this product or service say about me? Um, so, so we're seeing quite a bit of that. And I think that people. Um, On the end know, customer, the end, the end user customer, side of things, end yeah. user, consumer level, um, you know, and, and I will say that businesses, in most cases, the buyers are consumers as well. Um, and I think there's a dimension of that that always plays a, plays a role in a lot of buys purchases that they make, even on a B2B level. Um, but ultimately I think it's going to be what's, you know, convenience and, and all these other ancillaries out there. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of times is now, what does this product or service say about me? Uh, do I feel good about it? Um, you know, and, and there's obviously the price component that sometimes people will decide that maybe their morals weren't that important to them when the price is, price is right. But I think on the, on the large, um, I think most people are, um, are looking for something that they can feel good about, um, and feel like they can get behind or, you know, cares about the same things they care about. So the brands that you guys have worked with that know that the end consumers got that in mind right now, especially this next generation, this Gen Z that that's coming up, um, that are much more social, socially focused. And what does this say about me that I'm interacting with X, Y, Z brand? How are you guys helping brands to 
really think about those things and, and craft the way that they do things and the way that they message themselves? How have you guys approached that? Well, no, that's a really good question. And, you know, to, to Reed's point, you have to sort of keep your finger on the pulse of the marketplace. Um, if it's an emerging generation like Gen Z or a few years back, they, they put these taglines or, or names around, you know, an audience segment, if you will. Mm -hmm. But if we could elevate this to sort of the world of sponsorship, um, cause I know that's part of what your audience um, yeah. loves to hear about. Let's so, take it there. So I, I spent decades in, in sponsorship on all sides of the business, on the brand side of the business, on the agency side of the business, on the rights holder side of the business, on the event side, on the TV packaging side. I mean, um, you know, I've done, I, I didn't know there were that many sides. No, there are a lot of sides. <laughs> there are, there are a lot of sides in it, but here's what it fundamentally boils down to. There are buyers and there are sellers. And when buyer and seller come to the table to negotiate a deal, a lot of the sort of spade work has already been done. They've already done audience affinity information. They've already recognized that the seller appeals to an audience that the buyer wants to reach in a creative, innovative way, right? And in the early 90s, Coca-Cola sort of, you know, came up with this word that, that identified um, how to leverage, if you will, the sponsorship as the buyer beyond putting the red Coke logo right. everywhere. Right. And they called it activation. And that still is a concept today, nearly 30 years on. So Coca-Cola was really the, the kind of innovators I, around I'm that term? Gonna, I'm going to call them out as the, the first right. time I heard that term activation was in the offices in Atlanta of Coca-Cola. Okay, And what they were really saying was, listen, we know that we have arguably the world's most recognizable brand. Um, and we spent a hundred and something years building that brand. What we really want now is we want to take what that brand means, what that brand tastes like, what that brand feels like, what that brand looks like, what it sounds like. And we want to take that to your audience. So you as the rights holder or you as the athletic department or you as the, the club who's selling sponsorship needs to take into account our desires and our needs because if you can't, we won't right. be a buyer. So that for me has always been a really creative challenge because at the end of the day, you know, there's no algorithm, there's no math equation, there's no artificial intelligence that's going to be able to actually dream up and then put in place that idea or vision and execute it on behalf of the buyer. And when the seller can do that, then buyer and seller are on the same side of the desk. And that's the definition in my world of win-win. And so and I want to get into an example of when you've seen that uh, really come to life. But I, I think of we had Rick Jones, the captain of Fishbait Marketing, right? And Car Carl's laughing. Uh, it's a, it's a, an old friend, right? And, and so I think he really described it eloquently as well, thinking about in today's day and age with a lot of these sports teams and even athletic departments, it's kind of like going to a car dealership and saying, hey, if, if I'm the buyer, I want to buy a helicopter. Well, no, we only sell cars. And I'm saying, well, I need a helicopter. And I'm saying, well, that's not us, right? We've got cars. As opposed to saying, hey, let us figure out a way to, to make it happen. And um, I, I thought of that as an example of just, hey, if they're not both coming to the same table, or if they're not coming to the table with the same kind of um, 
that common ground, then you're ultimately not going to have something that's impactful for the fans on the, on the back end of it. So what go, go give us, you can give us an example of where you feel like that's really come to life and that you've been a part of. Well, there are a whole bunch of those examples. Um, but, but most recently, and you raised it, um, with Liverpool and new balance. Mm. Um, so Liverpool premiership football club, doesn't need any more explanation than that. And everybody or everybody should know the New Balance brand. Uh, New Balance paid XYZ to be the official kit sponsor of the Liverpool Football Club. And so what essentially what New Balance wanted to understand over, above, and beyond what the television broadcast and the on-site experience was bringing uh, to the fans and, and conversely tethering back to, if you will, the value of the sponsorship from New Balance's perspective. They really wanted to understand what role social media played in that. And that's where Hook It came in because that's the core promise uh, and core product line of the Hook It methodology around Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uh, the big three. Um, and what Hookett's methodology was able to do was dig deep into the data, circle it around engagement, likes, comments, shares, retweets, video views, that sort of thing, and then put a monetary value against that so that New Balance at least had a sense, order of magnitude of what the return on their investment was from a social media perspective above and beyond whatever the TV was driving. The flip side of that is... Liverpool was quite interested in that as well because Mm -hmm. their players have massive followings, their club has massive followings, and they wanted to make sure that that they were doing the best job they could do as the seller because at the end of the day, it's all about renewal, right? I mean, the the easiest sponsorship to sell is renew the one you have. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody who's been in that business gets that. So at the in the end, both became hook at clients. They both saw the exact same data sets, and what that did was it sort of took the mystery and the tension mm. out of the buy sell relationship, and ultimately put them on the same side of the desk to innovate and collaborate together on how they could grow, if you will, the valuation pie for both sides of the desk. I love it. Yeah, and when you're able to come together and create something that we're where it's a win for everybody. Ultimately, it's probably going to be a win for the fans as well. Um, so it's big time. Uh, Reed, I mean, as you as you guys think about how you help brands or properties, you guys are having some conversations or thinking about different things with some of these new soccer teams that are popping up even. As you guys think about that, I mean, how are you um, helping them to measure their efforts uh, and, and really go forth with these type of activations where yours yeah. might be more... Digital even. Well, you know, there's a few things to say on that. I mean, one of it is how some things are truly immeasurable um, and people get so hung up on, you know, every data point and I want to make sure the ROI is there or whatever. Sometimes if you just take a step back, go, does this make sense? Um, and I, we have some fantastic clients who do think that way where they come at it, go, you know, and a lot of times it's very observationally. Hey, I was in, so uh, we have San Diego County Credit Union here in San Diego, one of the uh, nation's largest largest credit unions. And their SEP marketing is fantastic about getting in branch, observing and saying, look, I mean, this is what's happening in mobile and this is what's happening in the store. This makes sense. You know, certain mm-hmm. events and we do a lot of event marketing with them. This makes sense, you know, and, and why does it make sense? Look around. 
that's why it makes sense type of thing, you know? Uh, it has to pay off for sure. At the top line, you're saying, look, we're growing, people feel good about us, and are there ways to measure this? Absolutely. But if you're gonna get hung up on, is it, you know, 12 bucks of this or 13 bucks of this or what, you know, you're like, wow, I'm gonna spend more trying to come up with the calculations. But again, you take a step back and go, it feels right. Um, you can do a lot of measurement on front end, uh, which is, you know, you bring up the USL soccer team that we're helping to brand right now and doing listening sessions with key communities and bringing those people together. And what do you think and feel? And are, the, are those in-person in kind of person, focus groups okay. in person? And then we bring, and then we pull out some of the things we hear and we put it back via social media to the broader audience and get people's feedback that way. Um, so people feel like they're, and they are a part of that process. Mm. Um, here's what we're hearing. Here's what we're feeling so that we're going to be part of the fan experience when you're at the game, the naming, the colors, the, the, you know, the attributes and the icons. Um, and, and because at this, and that's one of the most challenging things, you know, branding a, a sports team that I've experienced because you're really trying to reflect it, the community. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's not always perfect alignment. I don't know if you've noticed in politics <laughs> or whatever, there's not always perfect alignment between all these things. So you're really trying to say what's going to be something unifying among those who appreciate sport. They appreciate this sport, you know, even more or, or more specifically. Um, and, and how do I reflect something in this community that people are going to say, yeah, that's it. Um, which is different than what we do for an ASICs or where, you know, t you know, for, for somebody, yeah, like, give, it, give us a little insight into kind of some of the things you might do for that. Well, I mean, you look at any brand. Um, I, one of the first things I always want to know is how and why did it start? Um, why? Well, I mean, you start to understand the DNA of an organization, just like you understand the DNA of a human. I very much believe if you think of brands as humans, who are they? What are they like? What are they like at a party? What are they like with their family? In the case of an ASICs, one thing that a lot of people don't realize, we'd love to illuminate more, uh, is, is the name. ASICs actually stands for something. So Anosano and Corporosano, a sound mind and a sound body. So it's a Japanese brand that was built on the that. back end of the war where um, uh, Onitsuka saw kids playing in a war-torn area and they're having fun, smiles on their face as, as devastation mm. around. It's a place where it, within that, if they're playing, if they're having fun, they can be happy. And if you can do that, you know, you can, there's a lot to it, right? I mean, and uh, to dimensionalize. So beautiful start story of a now a multi-billion dollar international sports company that if you can start to root that into everything that they do, what is that going to mean you know, here many years later? Um, we work on uh, one of the nation's largest, if not the largest, family-owned um, home builder, Shea Homes. Um, you know, you listen to the start and where they came from and details matter. Family matters. They, the, you know, the family's still running, you know, from 1832, the family's still running the business and involved mm -hmm. in the business. So, you know, where does, how does that show up in a brand so that a consumer should care and they do care about the fact that the family, that family cares about your family and that details do matter. That is different than maybe a publicly held, you know, company that, is run by investors and shareholders who are saying, well, maybe those details don't matter. Uh, to them, if like I'm going to put my family's name on your home, that's going to matter a lot to me. Hmm. That's it's, it's fascinating. I, I think too, as you're as you're thinking about some of those things, right? Um, it, it it's it is just really interesting as you're looking where 
it actually surfaces um, to actually to figure out then, okay, how do we activate based on this? Mm -hmm. How do we actually create some some true marketing or a yep. campaign around this? Um, read, talk about a little bit about this because you guys aren't as much in the sponsorship space, but with a brand like Shea Homes, let's call it, right? How are you activating mm -hmm. with them digitally? Because you yeah. guys are full service agency, We're right? Full service. And, and actually, you know, sponsorship and events and event marketing is a big part of what we do for okay. any brand. Absolutely. Um, because they want to, you know, uh, you know, what's another thing that's kind of on trend too is, is um, you know, brand alignment and, and mm -hmm. um, uh, what do you call it? Um when you put two brands together, I'm, I'm just blank, uh, blanket on the term for a second. Brand, brand alignment uh, makes sense uh, to me. Yeah, it's co-branding, co but there's a uh, brand synergy or collabing. It's co-branding. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. collabs. That's there what I was like a more, yeah. So I was like, all of a sudden had that, a that's mind. a younger trend. Exactly. Collabs, right? Well, I mean, there's not, the, the collabs have been happening forever, right? And collabs being a sponsor. I, I guess I meant a team. younger word. Yeah. No, that's what <laughs> yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, that yeah. was the word I was looking for. It's like, that's the trend. I always go back to this stuff's happened for, I mean, forever. For sure. Right. And so you've got the collabs were sponsorship. You put your brand with that right. brand that people right. care about. Uh, you know, you Coca-Cola on Liverpool or whatever. That's a collab for, you know, uh, what they call now. So in any case, um, what we're what we're looking at there is how do you find that brand alignment, you know, mm. between multiple brands or trying to brand an environment, a brand and an influencer, uh, a brand and the consumers that are already buying who hey, are promoters of that brand. Um, so a lot of what you're doing is trying to find these areas in which there's just alignment. People are connected. They feel good about that brand, like mm -hmm. I kind of opened up with, that they feel like that brand represents them in an authentic way. Because it is different today compared to what it had been very a long time ago where, you know, the doctor endorsing the Marlboro cigarette or something. Right, right, right. right. Now, you know, you're going to find it's pretty open to know whether or not, you know, Matthew McConaughey is driving a Lincoln or likes a Lincoln or whatever. Right? No question. You know, and you're going to know. Um, there, you used to be able to hide some of that stuff. And that's why, you know, you had broadcast media was I get to say something and spray it out. And now it's interactive. And in my, and this is why we are Red Door Interactive as a full service agency is we believe, and we, we started the business 18 years ago that all media is interactive. All brands need to be interactive. It is now a two way street mm -hmm. and it's a conversation. So if you don't have uh, alignment within you and your consumer, with you and other brands, with you know all these your employees who uh, who are the 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 face of your brand, um, then this stuff's not going to work. And that has to thread through search, email, social, the website, and then obviously everybody who represents the brand, whether they're paid or, yeah. or not. Yeah, it's. I mean, and and even one step further too is the the in person actual activation at an event or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, um, all yeah. the way through. Oh, absolutely, and it's fine. I mean, like we spend, and I've always told clients for a long time is activation. You got to at least spend as much money on the activation as you do on the sponsorship itself. Yeah, and that's that has always been true. And where sponsorships have failed and failed spectacularly badly is when is when that didn't happen. Yeah, when the brand. Uh, was unwilling to sort of back and hedge their bet against the sponsorship fee with, I mean, one-to-one -one is, in my opinion, the absolute minimal. Two, three, five-to-one is a much better ratio there because especially in today's 
environment where media has completely fractured across the landscape. And to Reed's point, you have so many touch points now and so many opportunities to actually speak directly to a consumer on a one-to-one marketing platform that, um, you know, the, the, the way a brand can resonate is to understand all of the opportunities but, you know, again, it's like you can't get distracted. You can't get so wide that, you, again, you've lost sight of the message. And I'll give you an old school big company example, right? Okay. So I'm sitting in the in the chair at Universal Studios responsible for all of the theme park sponsorship worldwide. And we were opening the what we call the second gate in Orlando, um, which was Islands of Adventure, and we signed a new sponsorship with American Tourist for Luggage. I don't even know if American Tourist for Luggage is still a brand. That's, yeah, it is. Are they? Yeah. Okay, good. So Reed, Reed's like, we're trying to land them yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, so no, don't no, say no, anything no, bad about no, them. No, I think my son has their little uh, R2-D2 luggage. There you luggage. go. There you go. Okay. So they, they have migrated now because R2-D2 <laughs> is a Disney property. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, all of that said, so we – Cut the sponsorship deal, and we said, "Listen, if to do this right, you need to put a minimum of two to one against activation around your sponsorship." And they said, "We're willing to do that, but you got to help us understand how." So, part of the packaging at Universal Studios, not only did you get access to all of the theme parks, to the somewhere between seventeen and twenty million um, visitors that we um, were were proud to serve on an annual basis, but you also got, um, you know, access to the intellectual property rights that Universal Studios owned. So we were brainstorming around internally one of these, one one time around, how do we best leverage American Schuster? And they were coming out with a new full line of really hard case and in their term, bulletproof okay. luggage, right? I mean, that's a bad way to say it today because, but let's just say it, it could take um, the worst baggage handler at O'Hare. Um, that said, we said, you know, let's think to, so here's what we came up with. Really simple. King Kong with a piece of American tourist or luggage, it, this whacking it, banging it, throwing it around like it was a toy and it stood up to all of that. So it really resonated with the indestructible message around American tourister, but it used this massively iconic figure that Universal owned and leveraged globally. Everybody that would ever see that ad, and it was a print ad and a television ad, would instantly know it was King Kong. And then American Tourists did a really good job of branding their product inside of it. And it was a really, it was a really clever spot. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great example yeah. of where you're actually building both brands with with that activation. And it's, you know, it's a struggle for me in the sports space, seeing it from my vantage point of, especially in college athletics, where. They've said, hey, you know, we don't necessarily have the competency to go out and create these type of sponsorships. So we're going to outsource this completely and we're going to outsource the sales to a Learfield or an IMG um, now that they're now they're same one, same thing. But we're Van Wagner, let's call it. And as they're going out there and selling, they've got goals that they've got to hit because they said, hey, here's $10 million for the rights for the next however many years. Um, and now they're just trying to scrape by to break even on that. Right? And, and of course, the really good ones do more than break even. Um, but because of that, I think this ratio that we're talking about of saying, hey, for the, the spend on the activation has to be a lot more. Their individual, their incentives is to say, 
well, every cent that you spend, you should spend with us because we've got a goal that we've, we're trying to hit. Yep. And it's it's almost like these individual incentives with with these outsourced third parties are really ultimately detracting from the fan experience because fans not benefiting from one more billboard that's posted up there and yep. not an actual true activation that connects emotionally with fans. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you find the right connection, you know, maybe the, the rate isn't as high. I mean, if you do something clever, you don't necessarily have to spend as much. I mean, so the, the stuff that Carl was just talking about probably didn't have to spend as much if, if you're trying to like force two things together that don't fit. Right. Um, then people, one, don't get as much out of it. And two, you're just forcing it at that point. And there's a lot of things that are forced in that way. And I think some of that has to do with, uh, brands not, knowing or remembering who they are. I mean, imagine mm-hmm. if, you know, again, to humanize a brand, you know, if you were, you were trying to pretend to be one thing to one person, another thing to another person, that was fine. Maybe when you had a couple of channels that were you dealing with however many years ago, but today, if you have to be one thing to 20, 30, 40 different people that at some points intersect, how do you manage that if they're all at a party together? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's what, what brands are trying to face. So at some point you just have to be authentically you. Yeah. So you don't, you can be who you are and it's going to work in some places, not work in others. And you know, the places you should be and the places you should not be. And that creates efficiency in spend and creates affinity for those who actually like the real person, like who you are. That's where the, the brand architecture, the brand essence, the brand DNA work that Reed is talking about. Um, meets the <clears throat> the audience that the rights holder or the seller can deliver. So once that equation is sort of set up, right now you have you sort of have a right and a left hand. Um, then the agency's role, in addition to both sides of the desk, their collective role is to find that common ground. And I've sort of always used the pebble in the pond analogy, right? Okay. So if you have this, you know, placid pool of water, it doesn't matter how big the pebble is. It could be a, you know, a marble or it can be a boulder. It doesn't really matter. The same thing happens. The ripple effect. Concentric circles go out from the center. The largest one of those circles is the first one. The next largest is the second one. The third largest is the third one. When you start to go to the fourth, fifth, and sixth, yeah, they're ripples, but they pale in comparison to what I'll call the big three, ripple one, ripple two, ripple three. And if and if you can take that analogy further and look to marry, collab, yep. right, <laughs> the, the essential one, two, three, maybe go as far as four, um, and if you can find those four pillars or four legs of a table or three legs of a stool, you win if you can execute. And that becomes the key yep. so often. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, it does too. It's funny. So many ideas and such poor execution, you know, ideas go nowhere. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, this is, I'm bringing up Rick Jones far more often than I want to right now. But, uh, I remember we were, we were working with a client at one point and we came in and we, you know, he pitched, he pitched an idea and I said, no, we've tried that. Didn't, didn't work. And he was like, well, let's talk about the execution on that. How did it happen? And you start realizing, oh, all right, it was a great idea that they, they originally came up with, but it didn't work because one thing, two thing, three things that fell yeah. through the hole. So, uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll pile on here. Um, 
over over my career if I ran into a creative black hole yeah. or a writer's block or call it what you will. Um, you always had Rick Jones in your back pocket because <laughs> he is still today. Not only is he a super authentic guy, um, but he is perhaps certainly one of the most creative guys in ideation around sponsorship and activation as I've ever met in my whole career. Um, and I've called on him more than once. <laughs> well, we will not let him know that we had this conversation because I don't need his, uh, his head getting bigger. But uh, anyway, well, let, let's move into, speaking of kind of being authentic, let's move into the next segment piece of this where we ask a couple of questions. We, we always do this uh, portion. And by always, I mean for like the last three of these. Um, so first one. Uh, this one tends to get a little bit more uh, question marks than not. So I'm going to ask you to dig deep. But if you could pick a fictional character to go to work for, who would that be? And don't before you jump in and say, oh, Michael Scott, the office. It does not need to be a character that was in an office setting. Um, so I give the example that Maximus from Gladiator, Russell Crowe's character, would be a guy that I would go work for because he always was on the front line. He was not afraid to stand up to authority. You knew his values. You wore him on a sleeve, a family, right? Um, so give us your character that you would go to work for if they were starting a startup tomorrow uh, and why. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I know you said it didn't have to be in an office, but the thing that did go right into my head was Jerry Maguire. Okay. You know, I mean, like it wasn't on, but you talk about a startup and all stuff. Cause you know, we're one of the things we say about ourselves was fiercely independent. So we're not holding company owned. We want to stay independent. We want to be who we are. And I mean, that was a big part of, you know, recognizing what, you know, when he left and decided that's what he was mm. going to be. It was about how do I do right by my, my client. And that's ultimately, it's kind of where our heart is at as well Is at the end of the day, I want to have the freedom to do what we think is right, uh, do the things that we think are fun, walk away from the things that we don't think are right or are not fun. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it is built in a lot of ways on, on our on a core philosophy here. Yeah. And I, I think I'll add on to that as, as an entrepreneur, once you get that bug of saying, Hey, I want to go really just truly do what makes impact for clients and we want to do it the right way and not be beholden to red tape or things. That's when you end up jumping out and going to do your own thing. So Jerry Maguire, we'll, we'll take that. We'll take right. that as an answer. I like it. So um, um, I'm going to date myself here probably. Um, mine would be Captain Kirk of the Starship okay. Enterprise. Um, when, as a kid, I loved science fiction and fantasy. I read tons of it. Um, I, I read, you know, the Isaac Asimov's and the Frank Herbert's and, the, uh, you know, a lot of them. Um but so why, why Captain Kirk? Because he was off the front. Their, their, um, their mantra, to boldly go where no man has gone before, always intrigued me. Uh, to me, that's innovation, that's taking risk, that's being off the front. And then from a management perspective, if you look at what he did and how he managed the crew of the Enterprise, um, from a from a leadership and a management perspective, that's a completely different lens than you know shooting Vulcans. Um, he he allowed every person on his staff to do their job. He green lit them to do their job, but there was never a doubt 
as to who was in charge. And a lot of times he left the ship and led the team onto asteroid number yeah. 18 or whatever. So I love that, that that boldness to boldly go has always been a, a sort of a driving piece of the ethos that I've tried to sort of, you know, conduct my own life around both business and personal. Well, if you're a, if you're a sci-fi and fantasy guy, I mean, that, that, it's a perfect character for, for, I guess, if you were to go join his team as he starts a startup. Um, and if you're a big sci-fi fantasy guy, we might have to offline on some of these. I'm, I'm in the middle of the, the wheel of time series right now. It's like my fun. Okay. I need to take my mind off of work before I go to bed kind of thing. Amazon prime just picked up the, uh, series and it's 15 books long. Oh my. Um, so we'll see how it goes. But there's a couple of characters in there that I'm like, I would say them, but nobody's going to know who the hell uh, I'm talking about. You know, so. that's, but that's sort of the beauty of, of that whole genre because there are, you know, there are closet writers that are coming, you know, to the fore right now. And I, I mean, that Amazon platform is a, is a huge, huge opportunity for, you know, new and up and coming writers. No, it's 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 gonna be great. Um, all right, next question: um, What is a a tool uh, that you use internally within your own teams that you feel like has been a a game changer within the the last twelve months or so? Well, you know, I, I mentioned that one earlier. That yeah. office what, vibe. Now it hasn't been the last vibe. few okay. months. I mean, we uh, now that's been twelve twenty four months. Last two years, probably, we'll call it. You know, that's probably a little outside the window of that one too. But it, I mean, it's one of the ones that I do bring up quite a bit because um, it is so important to us and it's been such a great feedback loop for our people. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything of the last couple of months that, that have been as transformative as something like that. So I guess I'm a, a big net promoter on this one. Right. I love it. And that, that is not an ad. Yeah. Yeah, no, not an ad. So you operate off a dashboard, right? So you yep. can, so you are, you're, you're pretty much current 24 seven if you choose to be. Yep. So you're the exception because, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of go back to the hook it, the mm -hmm. hook it discussion here. Um, the hook it platform, I mean, you know, it's, it's a tech stack uh, at the very bottom is, you know, hundreds of thousands of individual entities athletes, teams, leagues, brands, federations across the world. And all of their publicly facing social media is tracked and aggregated. I mean, um, built billions of posts per month, built billions. It's with probably a uh, with a B. It's probably on its way to being a T. Um, but then, you know, you have the middleware, which is the proprietary hook it secret sauce, if you will, where all the algorithms sit. And then that surfaces up through a very easy to understand user interface. Uh, and it's delivered to the client base via a dashboard. One of the huge challenges uh, from any entity like that, whether it's a Hookit or a Salesforce or a NetSuite or it doesn't really matter, or even you know OfficeVibe, is getting the stakeholder on the customer side to use it on a regular basis, to understand what the attributes of it are, to understand how deep and wide it goes and that they actually have the ability to mine that tool themselves and arrive at their own insights and their own analytics and, and their own conclusions. Um, that is 
way the exception and not the rule, which is why companies like Hookit, like NetSuite, like Salesforce, probably like Office Vibe, have customer success people on the inside working with the clients on a regular basis so that they can vet how what's being done or in the most in most cases what's not being done <laughs> um, and how better to to stair step uh, the client to a place where he or she is comfortable with the tool not only because they bought it so right, right. let's get comfortable with it and understand the power of the tool and then take it upon yourself as the customer to overlay your own needs, your own requirements, your own conclusions. And to me, that's where that tension is. And that's, uh, that's a huge challenge in the tech world today, I think. Okay. Um, well, last question of the group. Um, what's an initiative that you guys are working on, either your company uh, or yourself personally, that you're proud of right now or you're excited about that that's upcoming? Well, I mean, I guess we also talked about it too. I mean, right now trying to work on the branding for that soccer team. I mean, that's And what's the, what's the team again? Uh, well, we can't say what the name is ah, yet. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, we're it's <laughs> all in process. Got it. So, you know, it's exciting, though, trying to get something like that um, for the sake of this community uh, that we've dedicated ourselves to for, you know, almost 20 years. Um you know, trying to give this gift. I and mean, we've obviously there's, there's baggage here at sports teams in San Diego and try to give this to um, the next generation, which in a lot of ways, you know, in terms of sports, soccer is, is, is a big one for the next generation. Um, and so being a part of that and getting it off the ground floor, which with like, you know, an icon like Landon Donovan here, um, you know, it's, it, that's been pretty special. Um, and we'll get to do that and make that reveal here pretty soon. And for anyone listening, right, I mean, USL is just doing incredible things right now with yeah. engaging the fans. I think last week, or no, it wasn't last week, time's flying by, maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, they had a fan or a supporter week where all throughout the week they had different things where fans could vote on what the coaches were wearing, what colors the teams were wearing. And, and it just ties right back into yeah. customers at the end, at the end of the day, want an experience that they can be involved in that. They say this is uniquely yep. and authentically me. And I, I think USL is yeah. doing a lot of really cool things that teams should take a notice on. Yeah. Yeah. At the right level. I mean, there's some stuff that the people want to sit back and enjoy it too. Yeah. So for there's sure. like, there's, 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 there's finance, a balance. Right? Exactly. Fair enough. Well, and you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it does help to get a quality product on the pitch. Um, and that's, yeah. a, I, I know a challenge that, that Reed and the, the broader team, the, it's real. You, you gotta, you gotta get the players. And the good news is in Southern California, um, the emerging talent pool is awesome. There's more than enough to go around, I would think. Um, but it's finding them, it's developing them in the right way. And, and that's a big part of what USL is and does on a daily basis. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a really fun thing to be a part of from afar. Um, from from my side of, of life right now, um, I've I've really sort of pivoted. I'm still in, in a quasi full time role right now, but I have been approached um, and am really keen to explore becoming, um, uh, you know, sitting on three or maybe four boards of directors. Um, I, I'm just embarking on a senior advisor role, which is kind of a, it's it's it could morph into a board member, but 
principally, it's not a consultant. It's really a seasoned, experienced ear and eye um, to help CEOs and their senior leadership team identify gaps, help close those gaps. And for example, if there's an opportunity to introduce uh, a CEO and his team to a read car and a red door interactive, that's one phone call away. Right. <laughs> um, and then the, the, the third bit is uh, I'm pretty excited about this one. I have um, embarked on a public speaking enterprise here. Um, it, I'm early in that, in that construct, but, uh, you know, we're, I, I've been doing that my whole career at conferences. I've moderated panels. I've keynote speak, uh, been a keynote speaker. I've been a featured speaker. I've been on panels. So I'm really comfortable in front of broad, diverse audiences all around sport, media, entertainment, and then sort of the emerging tech space. So that's, that's what my last 12 months has been about. Carl Thomas coming to a, a city or convention near you. There you go. Um, well, hey, guys, I really cannot thank you enough for spending the last hour with us. Uh, I know all of our listeners probably got a ton out of this episode. So once again, thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, our pleasure. It was awesome. Thanks. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Yep.